0: this is one of the two readings uh for monday january 24th 2022 this is an essay out of everyday life in south asia it's called one straw from a broom cannot sweep the ideology and practice of the joint family in rural north india by susan s wadley The Indian joint family is built upon the idea and reality that power comes through numbers and that those who seek to be most powerful, especially in India's village communities, should remain in joint families in order to successfully sustain a family's honor and position. A second but equally important component of the success of joint families in practice is the training that children receive that marks their interdependence, their sense of belonging to a group that is more important than individual goals and aspirations. The ideal joint family is made up of a married couple, their married sons, their sons' wives and children, and possibly grandsons' wives and great-grandchildren, and unmarried daughters. In the community of Karimpur, in rural Uttar Pradesh, some 150 miles southeast of New Delhi, some joint families extend to four generations and include more than 30 members. For Kharampur's land-owning families, which are more likely to be joint than are poor families, separating a joint family is traumatic, rupturing family ties, economic relationships, and workloads, as well as necessitating the division of all of the joint family's material goods. Land, plows, cattle, cooking utensils, stocks of grain and seed, courtyards, verandas, rooms, cooking areas, etc. Separation is, in fact, most comparable to an American divorce. It also brings dishonor to one's family. The paradigm most frequently used to regulate social life in Kharampur is that of the ordered family, implying the authority of a male head, a number of adults working together under that authority, and respect for all of those higher in the family or village hierarchy. As in many North Indian communities, Karampur residents use fictive kin terms toward all non-related village residents of whatever caste group, and traditionally they have seen the village community as one family. As one elderly Brahmin man put it in 1984, where there is cooperation, there are various kinds of wealth and property, and where there is no cooperation, there is a shortage of each and everything, or there is an atmosphere of want. Where there is cooperation, there is no need of the ambition to pile up wealth. The minor streams or rivers go into the ocean, but they do not have the ambition to be big. So, in the same way, property and comfort accrue without being sought after when there is cooperation. Property comes to the properly regulated man. Hence, the family is dependent upon a man who has himself and his family under his control. This control is attained through a variety of daily practices, as well as a clearly articulated ideology of male superiority. The same elderly Brahmin male spoke of women in this way. Interviewer How does the man control her? Brahmin male Control? Women don't have much knowledge. How is the lion locked in the cage? It lacks reason. Man protects her from everything interviewer if a woman progresses then she would be knowledgeable then how can you shut her in a cage brahmin male i say that if the sun begins to rise in the west then what it is a law of nature at another time he added that a woman cannot think as much as a man even though he went on to state she might be more powerful a brahmin widow concurred with this assessment saying the woman is inferior Choti, literally small a woman can only work according to the regulations. She can never leave the regulations. Hence, a woman who follows the laws and customs of her family will be controlled and bring honor to her family. A male gains honor by having land and wealth, by being kind to others, by keeping his word, and by having virtuous women who maintain purdah, just seclusion, Families can lose honor through their women by having daughters or daughters-in-law who elope, become pregnant prior to marriage, or are seen outside too often. Men may bring dishonor to a household by stealing, gambling, drinking, and eating taboo foods, as well as by being unkind and miserly. A family also loses honor by not remaining joint, in part because control is easy in a joint family. Kharampur's residents believe that joint families are able to maintain better control of their members, especially young adults. Shankar, a Brahmin male and village headman of Karimpur in the early 1980s, suggests that self-control, particularly sexual control, is more easily maintained in a joint family. Several aspects of joint family living relate to his remarks. First, as he notes, no one has his or her own room or even space in the traditional household. In fact, through the 1960s, in most joint families, the mother would assign sleeping places on a nightly basis. This gave her immense control over the sexuality of her sons and daughters-in-law. If she felt it appropriate, she would arrange for them to have a place where they could meet at night. A young man, newly married, once complained that he and his wife were being forbidden to sleep together because he had had a bad cold for some time, and his grandmother, female head of his joint family, thought that they should remain apart for the good of his health. This raises a second point. Many South Asian Hindu men believe that male health is threatened by too much sex, for a man loses vital energy through his semen. Hence, controlled male sexuality is especially important. On these issues, the headman remarked But if society lives together, your self control is maintained. If you live separately, you lose your self control. You get a separate room, you get a separate cot, you have separate food. Everything becomes separate. This affects your health but when you live together you have your mother at one place sister at another bobby this older brother's wife somewhere else or a servant at some place then self-control is not difficult you don't have any place to indulge yourself implied is food or sexual indulgence this is the greatest factor in good health that is why it is essential for the family to live together now it is important to understand that all this is a gift of nature If it is not in men, then how can we blame others? This tendency to live separate is very dangerous. They say that if a young daughter is alone in a room, then even her father should not go into that room. She is the girl whom you have produced out of your own seed, out of your own body, and she is young. So you should not go into that room. So when our family lives together, then we get less time and we get more opportunities to work. We would not even be able to think about it. Sex. That is why our health used to be good. Aside from the physical surveillance that is implied in joint family life, other forms of control are vital to the success of a joint family. These include such means as the silencing of women and children, or even adult males younger than the head of the household. Through rules that deny them the opportunity to speak, through the seclusion of women, pura, through rituals which mark the superiority of male kin and the importance of the family unit, and through daily practices such as eating routines that marks the male as superior. For example, a woman should speak only in a whisper, if at all, to her husband's father or or older male relatives. A man should not talk with his wife in front of his parents, nor should he do anything disrespectful before his father, such as smoking a cigarette. A woman should keep her face covered before all men senior to her husband, and she should not leave the family home unless accompanied by another woman or male relative, and her head and body are covered by a shawl. The yearly ritual calendar is filled with celebrations in which women pray for healthy sons, for long-living husbands, and for their brothers. There are no annual rituals where they pray for their mothers or daughters. Finally, a Hindu wife should never eat a meal before her husband and other male relatives have eaten, as this would be enormously disrespectful. The result is that women often eat late at night after the last men have returned from the towns or fields. These factors are dependent upon and support the powerful male head of the family. The unified cooperating joint family demands both a trustworthy leader and the respect of the sons. The most powerful Brahmin family in 1984 achieved the ideal more successfully than any other Kaurampur family. The family was composed of four brothers, the widows of their two dead brothers, their wives, children, children's wives, and grandchildren, who had lived together for over 20 years since the death of the parents. One of the brothers attributed this success to the male head, his older brother saying, we understood that he is wise, older, more sensible, would do every kind of good work, but would not do bad work. The family is now separated, but the brother heading the largest portion was described as thinking ahead, having understanding, and seeking peace. If the family stays together, its power increases. One young Brahmin man used the imagery of a broom to explain the need for a large cooperating family. Say there is a broom. If you have one straw separate, it can't sweep. But when all are together, it can sweep. One elderly Brahman man used the example of a family with four sons. All have different habits, but the family's power would increase if all four were under the control of one person. I am telling what I understand. A family must have one thing. That is, a family is strong when all remain in the control of one. Whatever is said, they must accept that. In other words, having accepted the words of Brahma, the Hindu deity, They have become firm and constant in that, whether it is right or wrong. But the family must be controlled by one, whether or not he has money. Unless there is selfishness on the part of the leader, the power of the family will endure. On another day, this same man added, If the family goes every which way, then the whole house is ruined. Equal treatment of all the members within the family and unchallenged decisions by the head are necessary to the smooth functioning of the united family. I learned this lesson soon after beginning field work in Karampur in 1967. I was living in a family that included four married sons, along with their wives and children. Whenever I brought sweets or fruits for treats, I was required to give them to the grandmother, who would distribute them among her sons, daughters-in-law, and grandchildren. Her decision as to who got what amount carried weight. Mine did not, although I find that 30 years later I am allowed to make the distribution myself. Further, if I bought saris for the women, they had to be identical, apart from color, for the women at each tier. The brothers' wives all should get one kind, their sisters should get one kind, the daughters all should get one kind, and so on. Likewise frocks for the young girls or sweaters for the boys should differ in color only, unless I wanted to instigate fights and high levels of tension among the women. So I learned the appropriate buying patterns those used by heads of households. Thus, it is easy at holidays or at more public events like the district fair to identify family groupings because of the clusters of girls in identical dresses or boys in matching shirts. My elderly Brahmin friend once told his somewhat idealized version of the rule within his family. In the United States, when people get married, a man becomes master for himself and feels that his duty is to his wife and children, but here in India, Whenever there is a guardian and we make the bread in one place, meaning that they cook together, we cannot say, my wife does not have bread, bring some for her, or that she has no blouse. Whether she has no clothes or she changes into a new sari every day, I do not have the right to give clothes to her or to complain. We are either oppressed by the older people or we have respect for them. There is another thing. We cannot say that she does not have a sari, so why don't you bring one for her? and I cannot bring another either. The time never came when I had to think about whether she had clothes or not. No one, namely his wife, ever said to me, I have no clothes or other things. No one ever told me this problem. If she had, what could I have done? That rule has been in my mind till now. But for the past five or six years we have become separate. Now I do all of this that the family wants, saris and clothes for the children. Before my brother was master of the family and I was always behind. I never was concerned whether my children were in trouble or were happy, I never worried about this. The unity of the joint family depends, too, on the wife's first duty being to her parents-in-law, not to her husband. As one young man, a water carrier by caste, explained, First of all, she should think about the family, then me. First of all, she should take care to feed them. My mother is old, so my wife should massage my mother. It is her duty to eat the food after my mother, my older brother's wife and sister. If my parents want her to clean the pots, she must clean them. Even if she feels that she is a new bahu, wife or daughter-in-law, and she need not clean the pots now, her duty is to clean the pots. Another man remarked that the women must also see to equality, not giving bread rubbed with ghee, clarified butter, a prestige item, to one person, and plain bread to another. Above all, the good daughter-in-law is one who serves and obeys her father-in-law or mother-in-law. As a poor cultivator said, she should accept what the father-in-law and mother-in-law say, whether they are right or wrong. The authority of the parents-in-law is key, because if a woman seeks favoritism through her husband, the unity of the family is threatened. I vividly remember a young man in his 20s telling us that his mother and aunt, his father's sister used to like his wife very much, but that he hadn't liked her. It was an arranged marriage, as are all marriages in Karimpur. Now he loved her, so they no longer liked her. Without his affection for her, the unity of the family was secured and the power structures unchallenged. Once his affection developed, the power structures that allow for the ideal unity and cooperation were threatened. Behavior within the family marks the hierarchies. Respect for those senior is demanded. Sons respect fathers and older brothers and obey their mothers, with whom a more affectionate relationship exists sons cannot smoke play with their children or talk with their wives in the presence of their fathers the flower grower's wife says that sensible literally understanding boys show respect to their fathers but some like one of her sons refuse to listen to the advice of their parents women must also show respect within the household A bahu asks her mother-in-law what to cook, how much spice to add, whether she can go to the fields, and so on, even when she is 40 and the mother-in-law 60 or more. Bahus also show respect through veiling, by touching the feet of senior women on ritual occasions and through eating patterns, always eating after both the men and the women senior to them. The rule of those senior is not always benign, however, and the decisions are regularly enforced with physical punishment. The household head or more senior person has understanding that the others lack. If they do not accept that understanding, that wisdom regarding right and wrong, the message can be reinforced through physical punishment. Husbands can beat wives, fathers can beat sons, and more rarely daughters. The flower grower's son, a young man then in his early 20s with an 8th grade education who did construction work in Delhi, explained the roles of husbands and wives thus, If a wife erred but did so in public, sitting with her friends, for example, she should not be corrected, for that would be an insult, but in private, a husband could say something or beat her. In other words, you scold her if she makes an error. You must make her understand that she must not do so. A sweeper woman said resignedly, if we don't work well, we're bound to get a beating. A young water carrier man told of the time he hit his wife. At that time, I was studying in high school. It was 1978. One day, the food wasn't cooked. On that day, I said nothing. On the following day, I was also made late because the food wasn't ready. Again, I didn't speak to her. On the third day again, I was made late. In this way, I was late each day. On the fourth day, I went again to eat late. It was summer. I sat on the roof in the air. Then after eating, I hit her four or five times. So a husband's duty is to make his wife understand things through physical coercion if necessary. A wife can also correct her husband. If he drinks or gambles, she should try to forbid him. But given the limits on female mobility due to rules of seclusion, she has no real way of intervening in these matters. Moreover, she cannot beat him, although everyone knew of wives who did in fact hit their husbands when angry. Children should be physically corrected as well. The flower grower said, If a son does some wrong work, beating is a duty. The goal is to teach through fear. My elderly Brahmin friend captured the essence of control as understood in Kharampur. Physical punishment and verbal abuse are used to instill fear. A child who fears that when the parents come, they will shout at me. That child won't play in the dirt, won't use foul language, won't fight with anybody. But if he has no fear, he will play in the dirt the whole day. Because he has no fear, he will use bad language toward others, so there should be control for every man and every woman. Without fear, according to Karimpur residents, there can be no control, and elders in one's family have the right and duty to cause understanding. Similarly, those who are senior in the village can beat understanding into those of lower status. In many ways, the village is perceived as one large family. The fictive kin ties that link everyone are one mark of this family writ large conception, although there are other ways in which the fictive kinship of one large family is marked. When someone dies, the whole village shares in the grieving by canceling music events or other celebrations. In 1968, a leather worker named Horlal died on Holy, the popular spring festival characterized by the throwing of colored powder, raucous play, and role reversals. Within minutes of the news of his death, all holy celebrations throughout the village came to a sudden halt. The perceived unity of the village was further articulated when a fire swept through the Brahmin section of Karimpur in April of 1984. People claimed that the fire was caused by the accumulated sins of the village as a whole, but especially by its Brahmin leaders. Just as the sins of a family are ultimately the responsible of the head, so too the sins of the village are the responsibility of the dominant caste, in this case the Brahmin landlords. Here again individuality is muted. Whereas an individual can sin and hence affect his own life course by altering his destiny, karma, he also alters that of his family, lineage, caste, and village, For an individual is not a unique entity but shares substance and moral codes with all of those with whom he or she is related in even larger circles. All those belonging to the nation of India also share in the same way. If a family should be united, so too should the dominant group. A retired accountant by caste attributed the power of Kharampur's Brahmin landlords to their unity. Those people, Thakurs, commonly landlords throughout northern India, Those people used to understand that they were landlords. All those Brahmins because they were wealthy. Above all, there was unity among them, whereas elsewhere there was no unity. Everything depends on unity. By the 1980s, that spirit of cooperation was felt to be missing, and hence Brahmin domination had lessened. In the election for head man in June of 2000, sixteen men ran, including four Brahmins. With no unity amongst the Brahmins, none of their candidates was successful. One garnered all of eight votes, of some 3,000 cast. The Changing Family Numerous factors have begun to put stress on both the United Family and the United Village. These include increased education, migration, and consumerism. Contrary to expectations, however, the Joint Family is more prevalent than ever before, although internal arrangements differ from those of the 1960s and before. As Table 1 shows, the percentage of all Karim poor families that are joint is greater than at any time in the 20th century. There is also a marked caste difference in joint families, so that in 1998, the richer Brahmins had 22 joint families and 24 nuclear families, while the poorer cultivators had 25 joint families and 46 nuclear families. With the average size of the Brahmin joint family at 12.2 persons, while nuclear families averaged 4.7 persons, twice as many Brahmin individuals lived in joint families, 269, as in nuclear, 112. For the cultivators, joint families averaged 9 persons, while nuclear families averaged 5 persons, and the number of persons in joint and nuclear families was almost equal. The increase in joint families is related to demographic changes as well as to economic changes. In the 1920s, the average lifespan in India was about 25 years, while now it's over 60. With many not living past their 20s, joint families were often impossible because many families didn't include two intact married couples. As Table 1 shows, in 1925 families tended to be either supplemented nuclear families a married couple with one related adult and their children, or subnuclear families having no married couple. So whereas over twenty percent of poor families in the nineteen twenties were subnuclear in the nineteen nineties with greater lifespan, only six percent are subnuclear. Likewise, joint families have gone from fifteen percent of all families to almost thirty four percent of all families. This increase in joint families runs contrary to the expectations of Western social scientists, who anticipated that family structures in the developing third world would follow the pattern of those of the West, with nuclear families predominating. Many elements work to keep joint families intact, including the role of maintaining honor, but economic factors are also important. The temporary migration of men out of the village to seek jobs in nearby towns or Delhi or Mumbai has increased dramatically in the last 15 years. Frequently the migrant leaves his family with his parents or brothers in the village, though he may eventually bring his wife and children to join him. Even then, the family may be economically and emotionally joint, as the migrant brother contributes cash to buy fertilizer for the family fields or to pay doctor bills, while also providing housing so his brother's children can attend the better schools found in urban areas. Likewise, the brother managing the family lands contributes food to the migrant and may house young unmarried adults or nieces needed to help with women's household chores. Moreover, it is to the advantage of the migrant to have a trusted relative rather than a land-poor sharecropper working his portion of the family lands. So while much of the time there may be two separate households, one urban and one rural, in fact there is a constant flow of people between the parts of a joint family as workloads are redistributed around childbirth, holidays, labor needs, and so on. Joint families, whether village-based or split between village and city, also benefit from having one adult male freer to manage other family needs, such as getting the sick proper medical care, dealing with officials, arranging marriages, or being involved in village politics. Families with no or little land are most likely to be nuclear or supplemented nuclear households. Here, poverty overwhelms the desire for honor, and without land to work and its proceeds to share, with little motivation to enter politics, with no money for complicated medical care, families split more readily. As one woman from the poor caste of Midwives said, "'My mother-in-law separated from us because of my children, saying, "'You have lots of children. You live hungry. We will live with the other son. That son is in service, has a job.' So because of my poverty, we separated." Now that son is in service. He sends money home. At my place, there is nothing. Now that she has left, I have to raise the children alone. Before, she used to look after them, while I went with the grazing animals to make cow dung cakes. In this instance, a mother chose to live with her more prosperous son, creating a supplemented nuclear family. What had once been a joint family with parents, two married sons, and their children is now one nuclear family, and with the father dead, one supplemented nuclear family. Most families move through a cycle of at least brief joint status while sons and their wives are young. As sons achieve differential success in the workplace and have more or fewer children, the momentum to separate grows. Yet, as the same midwife said, living alone is not right. But only those with land, political ambitions, and more favorable economic circumstances can ward off separation. But even in the joint families, other forms of separation are now occurring. Karanpur families are becoming increasingly couple-oriented and challenging the authority of their elders. One manifestation of this change is the use of space. In 1968, only one couple, a young Brahmin and his wife, had their own room, and only over the strenuous objections of the man's mother. But by the 1980s, many couples and joint families were allocated their own space to set up and use as they like, This space, often a room of their own, was clearly off-limits to the mother-in-law, who thus lost her control of her son's sexuality. Indeed, I was frequently told that the result of both separate families and rooms of their own was a shortening of the time between children, from over three years in the 1960s and earlier, to barely over two years in the 1980s. With these changes came challenges to the authority of of those senior- Songs in the 1980s continually spoke of new kinship patterns. For example, in one song, a bridegroom is described as very clever because he took his bride to see a movie without asking any of his kin. The following excerpt is from a woman's song that directly challenges the authority of the mother-in-law by reversing roles. Mother-in-law, gone, gone is your rule, The age of the daughter-in-law has come. The mother-in-law grinds with the grinding stone. The daughter-in-law watches. Your flower is very coarse, my mother-in-law. The age of the daughter-in-law has come. While the mother-in-law may still retain authority, songs such as these point to contentious issues in modern joint families, where the daughter-in-law is likely to be much better educated than her mother-in-law, and more willing to demand some independence and mobility as well as consumer goods unavailable in earlier decades. With her closer ties to her husband, as symbolized by their personal space, these tensions, though always present in joint families, are greater than ever. One response to the changing family is the enormous popularity of the goddess Santoshi Ma, the goddess of peace and benevolence, but also a goddess whose story speaks directly to women whose husbands are working outside of the village or to women having in-law troubles. In the story told as a rationale for her worship, a young wife has a worthless husband who finally leaves home to seek his fortune. She is left alone with his family. As his absence grows longer, she is treated more and more cruelly, forced to gather firewood from the forest and given rags to wear. On one of her excursions into the forest, she comes upon a group of women worshiping Santoshima. Hearing the story of the goddess, she too begins to worship her every Friday. The husband thus begins to prosper and eventually returns home. When the husband discovers how his wife has been treated, he builds a lavish home for her with the help of the goddess, so those who worship the goddess will prosper, as did the young wife. The village community is also threatened by similar changes, by democracy, by migration, by education, by right-wing Hindu movements which have pitted Muslim against Hindu in ways unknown in the past, and by new ideas and wants conveyed through films and television. As one of the carpenters said, Now there is a headman in every house. In village opinion, what is most damaging is a loss of the village morality that was based on a complex web of mutual obligations between kin and between caste groups. Speaking of the village, people repeatedly spoke of the lack of caring that exists now. While speaking of the family, people lamented the lack of love and of care for one's elders. The cultural code that supported a hierarchy whereby the high had knowledge and might and the right to control the low is now continuously challenged. Thus far, Karmpur’s joint families have adapted and met the challenge so that their unity remains. Meanwhile, the unity of the village is fragile and rapidly disappearing.